You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Man, if I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you so far, I see we do have some visitors in the room with us. If I haven't been able to meet you, I go by Ant. I get the privilege of serving as pastor here at Midtown Tunach. Very glad that you chose to come out and worship with us this morning. So glad that you're here. If you weren't able to make it here today after receiving a full hour, I wouldn't have known what to tell you. I, don't, I wouldn't know what to say to you. If that was the case, very glad that you're here with us today. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Psalm chapter 51. Again, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Psalm chapter 51. We will be continuing in our series that we're simply calling the life of David. In the Bible, there are a lot of people that seemingly are heroes, people that God uses to do a lot of great things, to save his people, to rescue his people, to, to protect his people, to proclaim his goodness. He even uses different people to work miracles through. One of the things that I love about studying and working through the life of David is that we find out that even the greatest of heroes are flawed outside of God himself. That the Bible isn't primarily a book about a lot of good men and women who do great things for God. It's primarily about a God who uses men and women who are flawed to accomplish his purposes. And we saw that in David's life last week. At the beginning of David's narrative, he starts off doing extremely well. It's hard to find anything that he isn't doing right at the beginning of his narrative. He starts off faithfully working in his father's field. Samuel comes in and proclaims that David is going to be king over all of God's people in Israel. He's a man after God's own heart. God uses him to defeat many of his people's biggest enemies. And yet, as we saw last week, he falls. He turns towards sin and he begins to spiral in that sin. At the beginning of the narrative that we read last week, we saw that David forsook his responsibility to fight when he should have been fighting, and sin began to wreak havoc in his life and bring destruction to others. David wasn't fighting when he should have been fighting. That's the setting. That's the backdrop. One of the things that I said last week is that as Christians, we are always in a fight. We're always in a war. Every day that we're here on earth, we are at war with our sin. But oftentimes we, we desire to make peace with our sin instead of make war with our sin. And we let our guard down. One of the things that I want us to make sure that we remember is that we aren't to make peace with our sin. We really need to be making peace with the reality that we're always here to fight. We need to make peace with the reality that we are always at war. We don't get to take days off from this fight for our own holiness and joy in the Lord. May we make peace with the fact that we are always at war. And may we be encouraged by the good news of Jesus that the war we are fighting has already been won. That the ultimate victory is not on the line as we fight. Yes, he calls us to join him because he loves for his children to join him in what he is doing. But ultimately, the fight is already won. He has already defeated sin and the grave, as we talked about last week, as he was crucified and raised from the dead. So sin no longer has mastery over us. We have a new master now. 
Our God is now our master. Sin no longer enslaves us if we are in him. And our king was better, obviously, than King David. For King David, in in his sin, actually harmed and destroyed this whole other family, as we talked about last week. But the king that we serve, not only does he not kill his people, but he died in place of his people so that we might have life in him. Jesus is a better king than David. But at the same time, I want to make sure we look at what happens next in David's life because it's very important, and I believe it is part of the reason that David is known as a man after God's own heart. We left off towards the end of chapter 11 in 2 Samuel last week where David obviously had turned away from God, but this week we'll look at his repentance. We'll look at how he turns away from this sin that was wreaking havoc in his life and what it looks like for him to turn to God. And here's why that's important for us today. Last week, I proclaimed how we are no longer enslaved to sin, and now we can walk in this newness of life that we have in Christ. But we need to know practically how do we do that? Practically, what does that look like? How do we walk in this freedom and this liberty that we have been given? And as we look at the life of David, We'll pull out some points and expound on how we can actually practically walk in repentance. And by repentance, I mean turning away from God. I'm sorry, turning away from sin. I think I just almost lost my job just now. Turning away from sin and turning to God. Turning away from sin and turning to God. It's great to know that we are no longer enslaved to sin, but how do we walk in that freedom. First, I want to recap, and you don't have to turn there. I'll try to move through it pretty quickly. I want to recap a little bit, uh, a couple of the verses that we read last week and and a few verses in chapter 12 as well. So 2 Samuel 11 should be up here on the screen. Verses 26 and 27 reads, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. In case you weren't with us last week, I want to rehash a bit of what David did in chapter 11. Again, when David should have been fighting, he was at home in the palace instead of fighting with the men that were enlisted in his army. While he was at home in Jerusalem at the palace, he lusted after a married woman named Bathsheba. He summoned her to come to the palace and sleep with him. She then finds out that she's pregnant. She lets him know. David then summons her husband, Uriah, who was on the battlefield where David should have been. David summons him from the battlefield, calls him home to try to get him to lay with his wife to cover up his wrongdoing. But since Uriah wouldn't do that, because at that time it was seen as immoral to go and be with your wife when your men are on the battlefield, Uriah refuses to do so. So David ultimately conspires and has him killed in battle And then as we saw in verse 26 and 27, David brings Bathsheba to his house and makes her his wife. And it seems like David has successfully covered up this sin that was spiraling and wreaking havoc in his life and causing so much destruction in others' lives. But then we also see what happened at the end of verse 27. It says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. I got to tell you, in sin, you have no secrets. You have no secrets. You've never successfully hidden sin that you have. God always sees, and now God sends someone to go talk about and contest with David. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, I read verses 
1 through 6, 1 through 7, I should say. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. See, Nathan was a prophet at this time. What Nathan does is extremely brave because oftentimes in this time when a prophet will go confront a king, the king would often have the prophet killed because he didn't want someone telling him about the sin in his life. So verse 1, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city. So he starts telling this parable, this story to David. There were two men in a certain city. The one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ooh, or I really don't know how to pronounce that, ooey lamb, which he had bought. And he bought it, and he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children, and he used to eat he used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So the rich man has many flocks, many lambs. He has a guest from out of town, it seems, come to stay with him. And instead of preparing one of his own lambs for his guest, he goes and steals the lamb of the poor man and prepares that lamb for his guest. And here's what we see in in verse 5, then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. So David is saying this man deserves to die, but bare minimal, he's going to give four of what he took from this poor man. And Nathan says to David in verse 7, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, sorry, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. Nathan looks at David and says, no, 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 that's you. You're the one who stole something that was precious and belonged to someone else. The man that you're saying deserves to die, the man that you're saying deserves to pay back fourfold is actually you. And we see how God is saying through the prophet Nathan to David, I'm the one who made you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I protected you when Saul was after you to kill you. And let's look down to verse 13. This is what David says. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nathan confronts David, shows David his sin. David confesses his sin. David is forgiven. But if you're familiar with the story, and we'll talk about it more in the next coming weeks, David does have consequences for this sin. He is forgiven, but there are massive consequences for him and his family because of the sin that he committed. And in this time of acknowledging his sin, David writes a psalm. The psalm is Psalm 50, 51 where David writes about and really journals his, his process as he is thinking through his repentance and working through repenting and turning away from this sin and turning to God. I want to read the whole chapter first. I want you to try to follow along in the emotional journey that David takes us on as he looks at his sin and writes this psalm in Psalm 51. It might feel a little bit scattered, but I do want to say this. As you process through your sin and repent, it might feel that way at times. But we, we should appreciate this open and honest look that David gives us, or that the Lord gives us through David into what repentance could look like from here. From there, I will pull out four basic points that we need to keep in mind from this passage as we pursue repentance. 
on a daily basis. I'll read Psalm chapter 51, starting at verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. From this passage, again, I want to expound on four things that we should do as we look to practically repent ongoingly in our lives. The first one is what I want to draw from verse 10, Psalm 51, verse 10. And the first one is, ask God to change you. Ask God to change you. Psalm 51.10 says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. God, give me a clean heart. Renew my spirit. Make my spirit right. David is saying he needs to be changed by God from the inside. With all the sins in David's life and the way sin is enslaving him, he doesn't primarily need good advice from other people about what he should do differently. He doesn't primarily, primarily need tips. He doesn't primarily need to just try harder. He doesn't primarily need more information. Those things are great, but what he needs is power. He needs to be transformed. He needs to be made new. He needs to be changed from the inside out. He doesn't just need to change his behavior. He needs his spirit to be made right. He needs his heart to be transformed. He doesn't just need information. He needs transformation. He doesn't just need to learn new things. My guess is he already knows everything that he needs to know, and he knows what he needs to do. He's saying, God, will you change me? Listen, David was a very powerful man. He had won a lot of battles. He is currently residing over all of Israel, over all of God's people. They, they are under him. He reigns over them. He has a lot of power, power over everyone in his kingdom, but he didn't have the power to change himself. 
but he does not have the power to change his own heart and change his own spirit. He humbly comes to God and pleads with him, God, change me from the inside. He doesn't have the ability to make his own heart right, and the same is true for me and for you. In the next three points, we're going to look at three things that we need to do, three things that we need to keep in mind. These things are great, but before we got into those, I wanted to make sure we understood what the goal was and who primarily does the work to change us. These next three points that we're going to look, look at are things that we should do, but we need to understand that these are practices that we want to incorporate into our daily lives with the prayer that God would use them to transform us. Does that make sense? These are not things that we do because we think we can fix ourselves. These are things that we do because we know that God uses them to transform us and make us more and more like him. So we plead with God to change us, change our hearts, make us right, make us love what you love, make us hate what you hate, make us more like you is to be our prayer to God. As we learn from the life of David, sin enslaves has the ability to enslave us, but as we also will see as we go through the other points in this passage, that God is powerful enough to transform us and free us from the grip that sin has on our lives. And he invites us to seek him and seek his power daily to transform us. So practically speaking, when you notice sin in your life, you just go to God and ask him to transform you. You can pray a prayer like this. Lord, change me. Change my heart. Lord, my heart doesn't want to follow you right now. Make my spirit and my heart right before you, God. Especially if you find yourself in a place where you don't desire to follow God and pursue him right now. Well, ask him to change your heart. You're not hopeless when you find yourself in an apathetic place of not wanting to follow God because you serve a God who's more powerful than your heart is. You serve a God who actually can transform your very heart, change your desires, cause you to love what he loves and hate what he hates. We are never in a hopeless position even when we feel enslaved by our sin. So we ask our God to change us. The second point I want to pull out from Psalm 51 is that we must admit that we have sinned against God. We must admit that we have sinned against God. Psalm chapter 51, verses 3 and 4 read, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Listen to verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David isn't coming in this prayer blaming other people. He isn't blaming the situation. He isn't blaming how he's been treated. He isn't blaming all the difficulty that he's had to suffer as he's been in war after war after war. He's saying, no, God, I sinned against you. My transgression and my sin is before me. He knows that he is sin. He, he, he has sinned. He is aware of his wrongdoing. He isn't blaming someone else. He isn't pretending to only be a victim of his circumstances. He isn't making excuses like, well, God, she should, really shouldn't have been there at that time. He isn't blaming her for his lust after her. He isn't trying to make himself feel better by calling his sin something that feels a little bit nicer. He isn't saying, I had a mishap or I slipped up this one time. No, he's saying, I've transgressed. I have sinned against you, my God, is what he's saying. He's acknowledging what he has done. He acknowledges his wrong 
doing. Now, let me be clear about that verse, specifically verse 4. David obviously has wronged other people. So how does David say that he has sinned against God and only God? Well, let me explain the Hebrew word for sin. It's a word ultimately that means to miss the mark. It's an archery term. When people, if they were shooting arrows at a target, if they were to miss, they would say that Hebrew word that is translated into our language as sin. It's a missing of the mark. It's a missing of the standard that is set before you. Well, the standard for how we live is set by our creator. He has established what is good and what is wrong. He's the reason we know that it's good to love people and take care of people who are hurting. He's the reason we know that it's good to be honest. He is seeking to lead us in a way that produces and cultivates human flourishing and prospering. So when we miss the mark, even when we miss the mark in a way that harms or sins against someone else, we sin against him first because he's the one who set the mark. He's the one who determined what right actually is. So it is his mark that we have missed when we miss the mark. He is the author of the universe. He is the originator of justice and all morality. He is the center of all existence. Any offense against someone else is an offense against him first. Because he is the creator. He is the originator of all morality. All sin is against him. He has established how we should live, and any time that we sin against someone else, we have sinned against him first. And on top of that, sin always makes allegations against God. Our sin always makes allegations against God. When we sin, we're saying that God isn't good enough to truly satisfy us. When we sin, we're saying God isn't trustworthy enough enough for us to follow him. When we sin, we're seeing that God's greatness isn't captivating enough to hold on to our affections. When we sin, we're saying he's not actually the king of kings and lord of lords. When we sin, we're saying God isn't faithful enough to be trusted with our lives. Our sin makes allegations against God. It, it proclaims lies about God and who he is. When you sin, you always sin against God. And David admits this here. One of my favorite preachers once said, sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with God. Sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with God. So when we sin, we sin against God because we are stating with our lives things about God that are not true. Sin slanders God. And if we're going to practice repentance and turn away from sin and turn to God so that we're not enslaved to sin, we must acknowledge that we have sinned against God so that we can identify what we should be turning away from. If you're not able to acknowledge your sin, then you're not able to truly fight against it and turn away from it because you won't call it what it is and name it for what it actually is. We must confess that we have sinned against God. So practically speaking, we can go to God and just say, God, I have sinned against you. I have fallen short of your standard. I have wronged you. I have missed your mark. And after you get there to a point of confessing your sin to God, we need to take the next step and seek to feel about our sin the same way that God feels about our sin. Let me read Psalm chapter 51. I'll read verse 16 and 17 as we transition to our next point. Verse 16, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased 
with a burnt offering. At that time, one of the primary ways that they worshiped God was by offering to God their different animals and, their, and the things that they depend on, depended on excuse me, for their livelihood. It was a way of expressing how much they needed God, how much God was worth to them, how much they trusted God. But what would often happen is that people would take that religious action And instead of actually loving God and worshiping God and desiring God with their hearts, they would live however they wanted to live and say, well, I'm still going to offer these sacrifices to God. So me and God, we're still cool, right? So I'm still I'm still good. I'm still good, even though my heart is far away from you, because I'm going to go to the temple or the tabernacle and we're going to offer these sacrifices to God. Because that's what God told us to do. Right. Even though their hearts are far from him. They practiced this superficial outward form of religion. Their sacrifices weren't sincere. They were disingenuine. And God didn't want those insincere sacrifices and offerings. So David, with a, true, with a heart of true repentance, he knows what God really wants from his people. Verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. The words broken and contrite here in the original Hebrew language are synonyms. The word contrite can mean to be sorrowful, but a deeper understanding of that word is an understanding that it's actually very much a synonym of the word broken. The the Hebrew word for broken there means to be broken into pieces. That word for contrite in the Hebrew means to be crushed. He's saying that he wants our hearts to be broken over our sin. He's saying that he wants us to be crushed by the fact that we have missed the mark. The Hebrew word for broken that we see there in that verse is the same word that's used in Exodus chapter 34, verse 13, where it says, you shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram. You see, the the altars, the pillars, the, the ashram, these are all things They were either idols or they were structures that the other nations had put in place to allow them to facilitate the worship of false gods. And what God tells his people is when you see those in the promised land, you break them, you crush them, you destroy them. So if we're going to pursue and follow God as we should, Not only should the things that pull us away from God be broken, but our hearts should be broken because we have allowed those things to pull us away from God. He said your heart should should feel the same way when you notice the idolatry in your life and you're looking to destroy those idols and break those idols. Your heart should be broken that you allowed those things to pull you away from God. It's one thing to know that someone that you don't like or that doesn't like you wants to hurt your feelings. But my question for us is, are you able to deal with the fact that if God is at work in your life, he oftentimes wants to hurt your feelings? Is your theology and your understanding of God big enough to be able to appreciate the fact that he so hates the things that that harm us? That even if we want to hold on to them and it would hurt our feelings for him to take those things away from us, he is willing to do it and he desires us to be heartbroken that we even chose those things over him. I heard one pastor say that it's easy for us to accept that Satan is against us and all that. But what about when you feel like it's God that's your problem? When God is the one that desires for you to be heartbroken, for your feelings to be hurt, that he wants you to be crushed over your sin. When we talk about growing in our love for God, we must must remember 
that growing in your love for for someone often means taking on the pain that comes from the fact that now the things that hurt them now hurt you. The things that harm them now harm you because you love them and you are not walking in step with them and walking in unity and oneness with them. That is what it means to grow in love with someone that you now suffer. Just the fact that they are suffering causes you to suffer. So God is saying now, since we want to walk in this loving relationship with each other, the things that break my heart, now they got to start breaking your heart as well. Otherwise, we're not walking in step with one another. If, if the things that break God's heart don't break your heart, you're not walking in step with him. There are many times when I look at the news and all of the pain and suffering and evil in our world, and it breaks my heart. I mean, I look at it and I feel crushed. It makes me want to look away oftentimes because I hate to see it all. And the way that I know that I don't look at sin the same way that God does is because I don't feel that same level of heartbreak oftentimes with my own sin and the evil that is in my heart. I I am often crushed by what I see in this world and other people sin and I was harming so many people, but I don't feel that same brokenness oftentimes over my own sin. I'm not walking in step with God as I should. Amen, church? Because God's problem is not just with the sin that's out there. And David isn't in Psalm 51 confessing the sin that's out there. He's confessing the sin that is in his heart. And he's saying, God, the sacrifice that you want, the offering that you want, is a broken heart and a crushed, contrite spirit. So if you aren't sad, hurt, and angered by your sin, If you aren't contrite and broken because of your sin, you can't walk in step with God. You can't walk in step with Christ because the primary reason that Christ actually came to the earth was to deal with the problem of sin. The primary reason he came was to deal with sin. Sin came in, he's wrecking his creation, and he comes to deal with it. He comes to deal with all the sin you see out there and all the sin that you see and he sees in here as well. So if you are not broken over that sin, then you are not walking in step with the primary mission of God in the earth. Because he hates sin and there's nothing he hates more. And there's nothing he despises more, and he desires us to hate it in the same way that he does. Because the reality is, Christ is not like King David. He goes to war. He's always at war. He doesn't take a break. And that means the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, with his crown on and with his sword in his hand, is marching into your life to wage war against the sin in your life to wage war and utterly destroy anything in you that is leading you away from him. And that is the most loving thing that he could possibly do for you. Because it's the only way you can actually grow in knowing him and loving him and grow in joy in him. So if you notice sin in your life, and especially if you notice that you aren't heartbroken over it, if you notice that maybe you've grown cold, maybe you've grown apathetic about your sin and rebellion against God, if sin has so hardened your heart to the point now that you really don't care that much when you sin, my brother and my sister, you need to pray for brokenness. You need to pray for brokenness. You need to pray for a contrite heart. You need to pray to be heartbroken and remorseful over your sin. You need to pray that the Lord would do that work in your heart. It's a difficult thing to pray for, but it's always worth it because it brings us closer to him and we are able to know him more and walk in step with him more. 
an example of something you might pray is, God, don't let me just perform some insincere, disingenuous rituals, like coming to a worship service or just coming to a life group meeting when my heart isn't in it. But God, cause me to be broken over my sin. Make me remorseful when I sin against you. And I believe as you do that, you'll find more strength to fight. I believe you'll find more willpower to fight against your sin as it now bothers you and breaks your heart. As your affections are more aligned with what God loves and you begin to hate what God hates. But after you've done that, after you've lamented the weight of your sin and as you pursue repentance through the power of God, and here's our fourth point, we embrace his forgiveness and cleansing. We embrace his forgiveness and cleansing. Psalm 51, verse 1 and 2. David writes, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins. See, I need you to understand something about God as I talk about him desiring us to be broken. He wants you broken but not beaten and not defeated. He wants you contrite, but he wants you not destroyed. He wants you to feel conviction from the Holy Spirit, but not condemnation if you belong to him. And you need to know the difference. You need to know the difference that he wants you to feel conviction, but not feel condemnation. Oftentimes as Christians, meaning to be helpful, we try to comfort maybe ourselves or someone else by trying to help them not feel too bad about their sin. And since we often don't know the difference between feeling conviction and brokenness from the Holy Spirit that leads us to repent versus feeling condemnation, oftentimes all we do is we try to help ourselves not feel as bad when really our enemy is the condemnation and not the conviction from the Holy Spirit that he desires for us to feel. So sometimes as Christians, oftentimes meaning very well and wanting to help, we'll say when someone talks about their sin and confesses their sin, we'll say things like, well, I'm sure you didn't, what you did wasn't that bad. I'm sure it wasn't as bad as you say it was. I, I know you, but it couldn't have been that bad. Or, well, well, there isn't any use of you feeling bad about it now. There's nothing you can do about it now. And I know what we're trying to do, and we're trying to help. But we have to understand, we want to steer our brothers and sisters and our own hearts away from feelings of condemnation, not away from feelings of, con of contrition and brokenheartedness over our sin. And David is showing us here that contrition is worship. And we're actually harming ourselves and others if we are leading each other away from feeling contrition for our sin. Now, specifically, the word condemned is generally speaking a legal term, especially in the way that it's used in the Bible. When someone is condemned, they are convicted of some type of wrongdoing, and now they are sentenced to pay the penalty for the crime that they committed. They are sentenced guilty, and now they must face this punishment, which is usually death when you use the word condemnation. So to feel contrition because of your sin is to be heartbroken because you have done something that breaks the heart of God, but to feel condemnation because of your sin is to feel that God probably doesn't like you anymore or doesn't want to be with you anymore or just wants to really kind of hold you at arm's length. And those two are very different. And I'll try to give a personal example. One of the things 
that I've noticed that has harmed relationships that I am in with people as I try to walk in fellowship with, with those, even family members of mine, is I have a difficulty oftentimes in, in the middle of conflict or argument admitting when I'm wrong. The reason, one of the reasons it's difficult for me to admit when I'm wrong is because then I, I start to feel this shame, the, I feel this overwhelming guilt, I feel this, con- this feeling of condemnation over me. And it causes me to want to, to deflect the argument to something else or maybe point blame back to that person. And so these feelings of condemnation are actually hindering me from actually dealing with the problem that is in me. That's condemnation. But then at times I've begun to see, especially those who are close to me, how that has begun to affect other people. I've begun, I've begun to see how now people, because I often don't do a good job of confessing my own sin, others feel like I might be on a different level of Christian than them. And maybe it's difficult for them then to share with me what's actually going on with them because I have distanced myself from them by not being honest with them about who I actually am. And as I began to notice that more and more, it began to break my own heart. And it's like, I am not loving my family, my brothers, and my sisters well. And then I started beginning to feel contrition and broken heart, brokenheartedness over the sin because I see how it's hurting others. And now it has empowered me to be able to actually deal with the sin that is in my life. Feelings of condemnation lead us away from repentance oftentimes because we don't want to go down that dark path and feel that condemnation. But feelings of, of contrition and heartbrokenness lead us to deal with that sin because now we know that we have offended someone that we care about and has cared about us, specifically being God first and foremost. So our God is calling us to embrace his forgiveness, to embrace the fact that he comes in and washes us clean. To embrace the fact that you don't have any sin stains on you if you are in Christ. That you don't wear any scarlet letters. There's no mark on you now because you have sinned because our Savior has come and he has washed us clean. I want to read. I want to read what he says again in verse 1. Then I'll read what he says in verse 7. In verse 1 he says, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. That word blot means to wipe away something. More specifically, to wipe away something that has been written down. David is saying, God, erase my sin from me. Erase my sin. Wipe it away so that it is no longer on me. And then in verse 7, he says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. See, I just love just how thorough God is in dealing with our sin problem. If you are in Christ, not only does he give you the power to fight against your sin and find victory over your sin, but he also comes and wipes away the stain of sin from on you. So now you stand before him justified instead of condemned. We receive justification instead of condemnation before our God. And so if you are a child of God, you have been washed clean. You stand before our God wearing the very righteousness of Christ. And I don't care what you've done. I don't care how many times you've done it. And I don't care how bad the thing is that you have done. He washes us clean because he died and paid the penalty for our sin in our place. He actually received the condemnation that we deserve. So we are walking around embracing condemnation instead of embracing forgiveness. We're saying and acting like the cross was of no effect. 
Like what Jesus did wasn't powerful enough. Like the cross couldn't actually accomplish what Jesus set out to accomplish when he died for us. But when we embrace his forgiveness, we proclaim to the world and to our God and to ourselves that our God is victorious over sin, that he paid the penalty for our sin when he carried our sin on his back to the cross and died for us and was resurrected from the grave. Embracing forgiveness is good news that actually allows us to pursue repentance in the way that God calls us to. Because if we don't embrace his forgiveness, oftentimes we will feel too much shame to actually come to God and admit our sin. And we're actually, because we're not admitting our sin, we won't even feel the contrition that we are supposed to feel. And it's all because we have embraced condemnation instead of forgiveness. But when we know his forgiveness... When we know that even though we have sinned, it doesn't change the way God looks at us if we're in him. It doesn't make him hesitate in his pursuit of us. He doesn't cherish us or like us any less if we have sinned, if we are in him. That allows us the courage and the confidence to do as First John says, and boldly come before the throne of grace, even though we know we have sinned against the holy God. If we are to walk in repentance as our God calls us to, we must embrace his forgiveness. We must, know, we must know that he does not see any sin stains on us. If we are to walk in this freedom from slavery to sin, we must remember that he has forgiven us and our feelings of condemnation are only feelings and we can't trust in them. So after you notice sin in your life, especially if you have a tendency like me to feel condemned before God, I want to encourage you to go to him and pray. And if you're having trouble believing that he's forgiven you, tell him that. And if you're having trouble with feelings of condemnation, tell him that and, and go to him and say, God, thank you for forgiving me. Help me to remember that I am washed clean from all of my sins because of what you have done for me on the cross. And this strengthens us to pursue repentance with vigilance and with aggression every single day because we know we've been washed clean. Now we're just free to fight against the sin that has ailed us and some of us for so long. In a few minutes, we'll partake in communion together for the broken bread that we'll have in the back. It represents the broken body of Jesus and the blood represents the, oh, excuse me, the juice represents his blood that was shed on our behalf. And as we do this in remembrance of him, I ask that we remember that this is the proof that we've been forgiven. That God came to earth as a man, died in our place, and was raised from the dead, that we might be justified and made right with our God. Let's partake in communion. Let me pray for us, and I'll open up the, the table for communion. Father, thank you for your love and your grace. Thank you for your forgiveness. Father, for we would have no hope. We would have no hope without you coming and dying for us. So, Father, we are grateful today as your people that you loved us enough to completely and holistically deal with the sin in our lives, that you love us enough to free us from the power and slavery to sin, and you love us enough to pay the penalty that we deserved for our sin as you were, as you were condemned in our place on the cross. Father, help us to remember that. Father, would you use this broken bread and this juice in the back to just help us to embrace the forgiveness that we have in you, that we might boldly come to you over and over again, repenting from our sin and embracing the forgiveness that you offer. And it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.